Welcome to Welcome to Primetime, a show covering the Freddy Krueger-hosted anthology series Freddy's Nightmares, one episode at a time. I'm Brennan Klein. Every episode is brought to you by donations from listeners like you. You get one new episode for every donation. Please help us keep going by giving to The Okra Project, an organization that is working to feed black trans people in need. You can find out how to donate in the show notes. Our patron this week is Lauren Klein. I know her. And our guest is horror author Aaron Dries, author of such books as House of Size, The Fallen Boys, Where the Dead Go to Die. And I didn't write these down. I'm literally just looking at my bookshelf right now. I'm impressed by that. I, I really, really am. Please feel free to use your eyes at any time during the recording of this podcast. <laughs> Thank you for the permission. <laughs> Please feel free to use your bodily functions in order to get through the next hour. <laughs> I always do, baby. <laughs> um, yeah, so hello, my name is Aaron. Uh, I'm an author down based down in Australia. Um, I guess you could call me Australia's Brennan Klein, only without the Jane <laughs> without the Jane Austen knowledge. <laughs> True. One day, look, you read enough books. I can only aspire. I can only aspire. Um, but thank you very much for having me. I am. I have had an actual, real, surprising thrill digging into this episode. <laughs> oh, I'm so glad. And yeah. Oh, we'll we'll get to that in a second. Like the you know we'll bite onto that turkey leg. Okay, my metaphors are weak. We're recording at a weird time for me because you live in the future. I do. Well, look. Please take note. Um, like you know, take comfort in knowing that the apocalypse has kicked in. Um, but we're not quite, you know, goldfish outside our bowls gasping for air yet. But that's soon. That's good. Soon. Yeah, we're we're Mad Max one. Like the oil wars are happening, yeah. but you know, there's still some sort of structure in place. Yeah. Look, I, I think you and I are going to rock Thunderdome. I think it's the shoulder pads and the glam hair, but we'll also get to glam hair in this episode as well. Oh, we sir. Oh, I can't wait. <laughs> Okay, we have to. Okay. Um, <laughs> we're talking about season one, episode nine, Rebel Without a Car. Um, this episode aired on December 11th, 1988. There were actually uh, two weeks between the last episode and this one. So here's what you could have watched during that two weeks in theaters in America. <laughs> um, so that first week, we got The Naked Gun and Watchers, the Dean Koontz adaptation. <laughs> oh, wow. I love Watchers. <laughs> I've never seen the movie, but the book was the first horror novel I ever read, so it's very important to me. If you're going to see the movie, maybe just skip the first one and go straight to Watchers 2, because that's actually a closer adaptation of the book than part one, which was just kind of like, yeah, look, we'll throw Dean Coon some money and then we'll just take the rest. Well, yeah, because there's a, there's a kid in it, right? So it's, very, it's like E.T., but with a killer dog. Yeah, 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 which is like my total demo. <laughs> oh, yeah. Um... Yeah, no, uh, I think you're the only person who has ever recommended Watchers 2 to me or ever seen Watchers 2, so I I'm excited to check it out. There is an incredible moment in Watchers 2 where the Labrador, the dog, uh, and you know it's a Dean Koontz uh, adaptation if there's a Labrador in it. There's a sequence in which the Labrador uses a pencil to type out a message to its owners, and at another point, the, <laughs> the Labrador climbs a ladder. It's amazing. It's pure cinema. It's pure cinema. <laughs> oh, yeah. Also, look, Aaron, should I be an insufferable pedant right now? Yes, by all means. <laughs> okay, because uh, it's a golden retriever, Aaron. Oh, that's right. It's a golden retriever. That's I like, right. I just, I don't want you to be disbarred <laughs> from your writing credentials. 
I would much rather be corrected than to have gone my entire life calling that golden retriever a Labrador. Dean Koontz would have my, would actually, I can't even go there. I, I'm mortified. Thank goodness you didn't let that, uh, me continue perpetrating that myth. <laughs> I know. Look, and look, I just, I feel a responsibility because Dean Koontz is, he knows that I exist. We, you know, he is vaguely aware that I'm a human being in the world. Um, so, you know, I gotta, I gotta protect my reputation. Hey, look, I love that you are like the any Wilkes of the Dean Koontz world. <laughs> <laughs> I really am. Anyway, actually, um, one Halloween when I was like probably 14, I went dressed as a copy of his book, Midnight. Like, not as a character from Midnight. I had like two poster boards on the front and back that were making me look like the actual book, Midnight. <laughs> that is special <laughs> that is truly special thank you okay but yeah sorry let's let, let's keep going that second week you could have watched mississippi burning twins with danny devito and arnold schwarzenegger or my stepmother is an alien all right if i had a choice i'd go with my stepmother is an alien i love kim bassinger in that film that the moment when she arrives and she's in that slinky red dress and goes to a party and she's eating people's cigarette butts amazing <laughs> Um, and <laughs> look, I haven't seen it, so I can't speak to it, but women in red dresses will come up next episode with you. <laughs> Indeed they will. Um, but the writer of this episode did not do much except that the, he is the son of Dalton Trumbo. It's Christopher Trumbo who wrote this episode. That is so random. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know how he didn't, you know, nepotize his way to further success necessarily, but you know, it, it's fun to see that this is happening um the director is john lafia who's the co-writer of child's play the director of child's play 2 which i find to be an improvement on child's play mm -hmm. and also director of man's best friend i love man's best friend uh ali ali sheedy and a dog of some kind which i won't um say w what breed in case i get it wrong <laughs> mm -hmm. you've already committed one faux pas paw <laughs> oh that's i i, I approve wholeheartedly <laughs> Okay, yeah, Man's Best Friend is actually really good. And yeah, Child's, um, Child's Play 2 is really stylishly directed and it's snappy. And we do see glimmers of um, that in this episode. Maybe we see a little bit more of his directorial style in this episode than we might have seen of, say, Toby Hooper's directorial style in the pilot episode from this, se from this season. Very true. Yeah, rather than one shot, there's, you know, maybe two or three. Yeah, yeah, three at most. <laughs> <laughs> Look, that, that's all you're going to get. It's a Fox <laughs> network show that nobody spent money on. Well, yeah, um, that's right. And there is one image in here that when we get to it, I'll say that, all right, I was impressed. Okay. But I'll let you know when we get there. <laughs> Please do. Um, our cast here, it's it's a pretty much a two-hander. We have Craig Hurley as Alex. Uh, all I could find that he did like consistently was a show called Nasty Boys, which is about undercover Las Vegas cops. Um I'd watch that. that. <laughs> oh yeah, no, it, it I I'd watch it if it was what I thought it was at first, but you know. Um Katie Barberi also stars as Connie. Um, you know, she was fresh off her uncredited appearance as an economic student in Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Um <laughs> she she was in the Garbage Pail Kids movie as a character named Tangerine. Does that mean anything to you? Uh no, look, but it's a it's a lovely color. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, but here's the thing that I found really fascinating about her. Um, she actually has went on to star in 
a million telenovelas. So apparently she speaks Spanish, which is awesome. Um, like I pulled from the list of like literally over a dozen shows she has been in, but she's in eight, 85 episodes of Eva La Trailera, tra <laughs> Trailera, 122 episodes of Mi Corazón Insiste en Lola Vocan, and like a bunch of other shows. I look at all of those shows probably had the exact same production uh, budget as this show. And really it's, they're both hinging on a dime. They're, you know, this is basically telenovela with a body count. Yeah, but it's just, I, I really want to, you know, see her camping it up in these telenovelas because I actually really liked her quite a bit. Me too. Me too. But yes, let's uh, let's get into the episode. So we open on two teens working a shift at Beefy Boy Burgers, which is the center of the Springwood Cinematic Universe, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> which is momentarily about to be co-opted into the Stephen King multiverse, <laughs> just with, a, with them going on a trip to the Overlook Hotel uh, very shortly, which is a surprise. So am I correct in thinking that this is tying into It's a Miserable Life? Yes. Um, yeah, it's tying into the, you know, John Cameron Mitchell worked at Beefy Boy. We also, this episode was, has not aired yet as of the time that we're recording, but it has been recorded. Um, there's an episode called Mother's Day where there's a advice, call, advice radio ad person. And when she cuts to commercial, it cuts to a Beefy Boy commercial. So this is the only kind of consistent world building we've gotten through this show. <laughs> That's actually kind of special, uh, and I love that. Um, what's the name? What's the name of the the diner again? Beefy Boy is a Beefy Boy. Oh yes, yeah. So Beefy Boy, I love that the interior production design. It's all like green and red paint and green and red neon. I like that. You know, I like to see a little bit of effort, and you know, there's a little bit of effort there. I appreciated that. Yeah. Look, when when we get it, it's lovely. <laughs> um, <clears throat> there is a little line kind of name dropping the previous episode. They're like, oh, the, the guy who owns this doesn't come in for the night shift anymore after the shooting. And it's like, first of all, he didn't come for that night shift either. <laughs> um, but he just continues to let teenagers work his restaurant alone when he knows that they might just be shot by random, you know, motorcycle leathermen. And also considering these really difficult working conditions they're on with these shootings and such, they're only allowed a three minute break. I think from a human resources perspective, this place is, ugh, it's not going to survive COVID times. Let's put it that way. No, look, this place is going down. It has controversies out the wazoo. <laughs> um, I am happy to see that they increased their staff number, though, because there are three people working the shift this time. <laughs> and, and for only for like three customers, basically. It's, a, it's not a really great business model, I think, over there at Beefy Burger. It's, and it's kind of got like a fast time of Ridgemont's high vibe, only just slow times. Really slow times. <laughs> yes. Um, so yeah, Alex uh, is the main guy that we're paying attention to. He's a bemulleted, single-earringed teeny bopper. Um, he has a he is a quote-unquote motorhead. He's saving up for a muscle car, which is, in his words, a ticket to the human race. <laughs> we all feel this way, right? I I oh, often I often think of you as somebody who's waiting for that ticket to the human race in car form. Look, I've always wanted to be a human, and this is the only way to do it. Hey, look, Brendan, if you want to just improve your life, in addition to, you know, getting a really muscled-up car, just uh, pick up a PC, man, which is another oh line. <laughs> which was glorious. You know, uh, you know, he wasn't wrong. 
No, and not the only great line in this in this sequence, but I'll let you touch on that because I'm sure it's on your notes. <laughs> I don't know. Look, I, I take so many notes and carving them. I, I have to kill a lot of darlings to get to the plot synopsis that I have. <laughs> so if I miss something, you know, hit me with it. This one I won't um, let it slide. Go for it. Okay. Well, the most important thing about this scene is that Joe shows up. Um, he is the kind of like rival gearhead guy. He shows up in a denim jacket with his patch for his like child gang that he belongs to called the black aces <laughs> um with fingerless gloves his hair is reaching beyond the extent the extension of his soul like <laughs> it is so large it is a beautiful masterpiece that molly crew would be jealous of yes yep hundred percent. He also kind of acts, he, his attitude, I kind of feel as though there is a, uh, there was a choice that was made and this man either was going to be this geared up glam, glamazon motorhead, or he was going to grow up to be that really obnoxious man in Goodwill Hunting. You know, the one that like, you know, kind of approaching Mini Driver and, and, uh, and, uh, uh, Will in the bar and he's like, you know, between recess and lunch, he's just continuously obnoxiously <laughs> trying to work people down for no reason whatsoever. And and I just wanted um, our River Phoenix lookalike main lead with a mullet to just turn around and go, you know, how do you like them apples? That's what I was <laughs> thinking the whole time. But yeah, Look, it's a scene. Two roads are diverging in a wood in front of Joe and he has to pick <laughs> which future is ahead of him. <laughs> he chose poorly. <laughs> I will say, oh, yes. Um, but I will say he does look even better in every progressive scene as we get later. He also ages. I, I think uh, we need to, everyone is apparently a teenager in this show, but they all vary from scene to scene between looking at least 23 to at least 43. It, it fluctuates. Oh, yeah. No, look, and teenagehood in the 80s was a long process. <laughs> um <laughs> But yeah, so Alex's girlfriend, Connie, shows up. She reveals that she got a scholarship to Springwood College. So Springwood has Sunnydale disease, where it just has every single facility known to the human race, all within the <laughs> bounds of this tiny Ohio town. That's hilarious. <laughs> Thank you. I, you're right. Um, so basically, they, they go to the Overlook to make out. and congrats. He's basically like, congratulations on your scholarship. Uh, let me reward you with sex. And, you know, she's into it, so good for her. Well, look, um, I think that they were kind of in the mood because, and this is the line that we skipped in The Darlings That You Have Killed. Just oh, yes, before okay, they, give me. Just before they get into the car, right, to go to the Overlook Hotel, which is from The Shining. Um, okay. <laughs> I, I, maybe you're... Look, I, I'm trying to give you the benefit of the doubt of maybe this isn't a thing in Australia, but, like, it's not the Overlook Hotel. Like, it, it's it's make-out point. Like, it's... Oh. Oh, it's oh like a, it's I a, see. It's a high area that's looking over the town. All right. Okay. I stand corrected on that, but we are still going to get some good uh, Christine, Stephen King vibes coming up soon. But and oh, yeah, all the vibes of, are there. The vibes are totally there. And and I think the line that led us towards this kind of sexy retreat was when they, just before they leave and Connie has like, you know, kind of sassed uh, the, the, the motor, the motor guy, glam guy. And there's the other guy who is in, who works there. And he's like, yeah, I give good burger, which is oh, like yeah. <laughs> some sort of like pun on I give good head but it makes no sense whatsoever yeah it's it's a beautiful piece of writing because i love something that is so completely inelegant that it makes you doubt yourself as to whether like <laughs> your worldview makes sense 
And and uh, jumping onto your line in terms of the overlook, yeah, I think that's not a thing down here. So I was like, wow, they're going to make out in a hotel. They're going to go get it, like check themselves in for just one night. That's amazing. I, I love the ambition there. But this makes so much more sense. You know, look, I'm sure you've seen this before in movies and things where it's like, you know, a bunch of teens go out and they all park in the same place and they all make out and it's like a little teen orgy in their separate cars. Yeah, I remember. Well, it makes sense as well because this kind of does like uh, evolve into George Romero's Grease, you know. So it, it <laughs> does make sense. It all kind of lines up. No worries. I'm sorry. I, look, I I don't mean to be you know your fact checker for this episode, <laughs> but I'm trying to bridge the gap between you know America, Australia, bring the love. The cultural um, divide is real. Yeah. So, okay. Basically, Alex um, has no intention of going to college. He hasn't even applied to any colleges. Um, Connie really wants him to try to go to college, but he's like, no, I'm going to get a job at the shop. And she's like, what will my parents think? They'll think I'm just shacked up with some grease monkey. And I was like, have you looked at this fluffy, beautiful man in front of you? No one's ever going to say that about him. (laughs) And he is fluffy and beautiful, like a golden retriever. Yes, exactly. (laughs) Um, okay, so on the way home, or actually on the way to Makeout Point, I think, they discover an abandoned classic car. Um, I don't remember, you know, in what direction they're heading. Um, but then we get Freddy's little thing. It's He's like, one mile or the driver's life, whichever comes first. Which is, it's okay. It's not the worst thing he said. It's it's better than some of his other quips leading up to now. But um, the thing that I kind of find just a bit peculiar, and again, the cultural divide... I'm fairly certain that the transferal of, like, car ownership doesn't work this way. If you find an abandoned car, right, you don't just Mm. get to keep it, right? (laughs) No, I think there is a clause in every pink slip called the findies keepies clause. Ah, yeah. Yep, yep, true. I I glazed over that one the last time that I picked up a a car with a serial ghost rapist in the the trunk. I missed that. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Look, it happens to all of us. Um, just next time, you got to read the fine print. <laughs> um, but yeah, so he's working on fixing up this car, Christine style. His dad comes in to tell us the time has passed. He's like, it's been six months. Connie left you. I'm wearing a super greasy tank top like I'm in a gay porn film. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was it was erotic at best. Oh, yeah. And I was like, I never got the sense that his dad also worked on cars. It's just how, how he lives his life. <laughs> But basically, he does find out that the car was owned by someone who died trying to leave Springwood. Um, the corpse of the previous owner keeps appearing to him as an apparition, telling him, like, you'll never get out. You'll never be able to leave. And confession, when he popped up that first time, there's a kind of a, there is kind of an effective shot where they're driving along and you see him in the dark rushing towards the camera. It actually kind of made me open my eyes a little bit <laughs> not necessarily were, were a jump scare the whole time watching the show <laughs> i watch i watch freddy nightmares the way that i do i listen to my podcasts with no use of eyes whatsoever no it just it just uh, it gave me a little start i was like okay you got me you got me john you got me <laughs> yeah i think i i i don't want to skip too far ahead but i think visually um like or just the visual schema of this episode is kind of the strong suit more than let's say the storytelling yes um so basically, he and Joe have a dick measuring contest over their cars. Yeah. Um, Joe starts a, they're going to play a game of chicken. And basically, Joe's like, if if I win, I get Connie. And it's like that, you know, she does have to decide um, on her yeah. own. But yeah. that, that's cool. Men what? fighting for 
why is non-consensual girl trading a thing in every kind of movie with uh, that involves cars? Like, it makes no sense to me whatsoever. Well, because the cars are their women because, you know, they're like, oh, you know, she's like this. I'm going to name her Christine. Ah, um, yeah, yeah. And also, Connie doesn't win either way. Like, she she gets traded off on either end of the bargain. It, uh, poor Connie. Poor Connie. Look, but between you and me, I'd rather have Joe, at least aesthetically. <laughs> but no, they're both <laughs> terrible men. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But yeah, so so they're racing for Connie's pink. Um, <laughs> yep, <laughs> I'm so I'm sorry to everyone about that joke. Yeah, but boom. okay, so we do get a little glimpse of Joe's crew assembled at the the game of chicken in the ravine, wherever they are. Um, and the outfits are increasingly preposterous. Um, in this sec- section of the episode, Joe has ditched his shirt, so it's just a denim vest over bare torso, and it's delectable yeah it's it's intense i I like and i can't tell if it's just the low like resolution of the vhs from a vhs rip that i saw in terms of actually watching this but increasingly his crew become more (laughs) non-binary oh yeah as the as the the episode progresses it's 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 a it's a thing and there is absolutely as well and it might be stuff that i bring to it but my queer mind kind of imposes this tortured uh you know narrative about the people who just want to get out of the small town and in a small town that's crushing you and your ambition is too big for this place and you've got to blow this popsicle stand. I think there are very strong kind of queer vibes maybe flowing in and out through this episode. Oh, yeah, this whole series seems to have that kind of undercurrent almost yeah. completely by accident but <laughs> yeah. no i was thinking the same thing when i saw uh, joe's crew i was like i would love to see the cast of pose like do a photo shoot in these outfits yeah yeah totally um, like that's that's the image that i was getting while watching that <laughs> um but yeah so oh i gotta go a little bit faster they they play chicken joe loses he you know pulls away and Alex enters a dreamscape, meeting his friend the corpse, who's telling him, you'll never leave. And then, you know, we're out of a dream or a hallucination or whatever. And it turns out, in reality, he has died from carbon monoxide fumes while fixing the car in the garage. Womp yeah. Womp. Uh, yeah, that was a bit of a downer. But look, I appreciate a nice little Chekhov's gun, you know. And I, I like that it's been, you know, we had Chekhov's carjack. Because am I correct in thinking that the carjack might have fallen and he died of monoxide carbon poisoning? Or was he Oh, yeah, because he, he couldn't. Yeah, I think it was both. So he was trapped so he couldn't uh, fix it. Gotcha. Well, look, I just saw, uh, look, Chekhov's carjack, you get a tick from me. That's, you, yeah, it's good. Look, and that's that's all I've ever wanted. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> uh, so Freddie shows up in his liminal space. He's like, if you're thinking of leaving Springwood, you ain't going nowhere. He crushes a model car. He wanders off to craft services. You know, thank you Boom. for Robert England. Yeah. He's also um, doing like a kind of nice Quint versus Hooper in Jaws beer can versus paper cup kind of like crunch, which I appreciated. Oh, yeah, it it is a power move. <laughs> it's definitely a power move. And look, before we just move on, just a note on the structure. I'm kind of fascinated by, like, the the anthology within an anthology babushka doll structure of this show. And, oh, yeah. And, and the shift is always really exciting, but also really nerve-wracking. I'm like, okay, we're halfway through, and I've invested in uh, River Phoenix Mullet Boy, and I'm concerned as to where we're going from this point onwards. Yeah, no, uh, it, that's, you know, this show always leaves you kind of you're in the moment where bugs bunny has stepped out of the airplane and hasn't noticed that he's not walking on you know (laughs) 
floor. And so you look down and you're like, well, I don't know where I'm going now. Let's find out. Yep. And and little did we know we had no reason to be concerned because what is coming up is a thing. Holy (laughs) shit, Aaron. Okay. So now we're following Connie a couple months later. She's at college. She has a dream about like being dressed in this beautiful dress with these long white opera gloves, wandering through this misty diorama of sorority women and joining the Omega Kappa Pi sorority, um, which turns out to be a fantasy. It cuts to her interview with the sorority president. And I know you already uh, admitted to your lackluster Jane Austen knowledge, but the <laughs> sorority president president is named Lydia Bennett, which is out of control. <laughs> <laughs> I had no idea, but now that you've pointed that out, that's incredible. And it just goes to show, like, we are very similar in some ways, but we absolutely have a diverging background knowledge because you you are thinking about Jane Austen and I'm looking at her and thinking of uh, of Portia Del Rossi from Scream 2 going, hi, no, I really mean that. Hi. <laughs> Look, which are both great contributions to Western literature. So I, I think we're, we're, we're coming at it from the right angles. Yeah, totally. But yeah, for those who aren't aware, Lydia Bennett is one of the sisters of the main character in Pride and Prejudice. She's the one who is... Who makes the worst decisions, shall we say? Yeah, and look, I love her wardrobe selection throughout the the upcoming scene. She bounces between, like, you know, kind of soft, I'm about to go to prom, to I'm a customs officer wearing a tie, and, and it's, it's, it's amazing. It's amazing. Yeah, the outfits in this episode are incomparable. Yes, and for those who are watching along, okay, and I highly recommend you check out this episode, and I don't know if it's going to be something that you bring up, Brennan, but I I, depl- I really encourage people to do bread watch, okay? Watch the the number of slices of bread and baked goods that pass through the next 25 minutes of this show. <laughs> they va- they vary in this, like, everyone in this sorority house is apparently on some sort of demented keto diet where they're only eating uh, loaves of bread, hamster-sized, croissants um or just beef just usually with giant serving forks sticking out of the top too we will get there (laughs) um yeah we certainly will um but there here comes a line that i think was meant as satire and i i it, it must be it could only be but basically she's being this evil sorority girl where it's obvious that connie's not gonna get in because this sorority was built on tradition 50 years ago and she's from the wrong side of the tracks even though she's a you know like middle class white lady from ohio mm-hmm. um which is like oh you're on a scholarship the financial aid cases usually stay in the dorms you might feel more at home with all the racial and ethnic diversity <laughs> I look. I actually think maybe it is deliberate. It's like I think it is. I think. Oh yes, totally. It's it's showing how ridiculously cruel (laughs) this character is. (laughs) It's good. I like it. Thank you. Um, Yeah. Okay. So Connie hangs out with her friend that we never see again. They drink wine from Pittsburgh, and she talks about how she just really wants to belong somewhere. I don't know why she has chosen here to belong, like this particular sorority, but we're, you know, we're getting, this is her I want song. This is what she really wants. Yeah. And we don't see this character again. And obviously they're also drinking urine. That is the most disgustingly colored wine I've ever seen in my life. It's like somebody who hasn't hydrated themselves for at least four days. uh, And that's what they're drinking. Well, at least the joke is that the wine is terrible. So at least it matches. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, oh, Freddy shows up again. He talks about his own sorority called Corpus Rigor Mortis. It's looking for new members. A plus. Um, A plus from me. <laughs> yeah, I would join that. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay, so the sorority 
uh, leaders are meeting with their sorority advisor. Basically, their group is going bankrupt, so they have to fire the cook and the housekeeper, and they see their opportunity in Connie. They aren't intending on actually making her a full member, but they're making her come in as a pledge so they can do all of their chores. They're Cinderellaing her. Totally. And you know that they're affluent because of the uh, harpsichord Hannibal Lecter-style music that's playing in the background. Oh, and yeah, there's... more Jane Austen <laughs> moments. Absolutely. There's a, there's a great line in there where, where the sorority den mother, which is, again, this is a cultural thing as well. I, it, we don't really get the sorority thing here, but I know about how this stuff works from having seen Black Christmas a thousand times. Uh, there's a Yeah, she, she like, hides all her liquor in yeah. toilet tanks and whatnot. Look, I, that, that's my aesthetic. It's totally my aesthetic. Um, uh, but she's like, she talks about being a graduate of the Silver Spoon, and I'm like, that's good. Well done. Oh. Snap, snaps. Oh, yeah. No, look, the, the satire is actually pretty on point for these characters. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, truly, someone is in the corner playing a pianoforte. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so they, they all look nice because the advice is coming over for a luncheon. They're, you know, kind of... For some reason, them bringing on Connie gives them money. I'm unclear on what that equation is. Look, I think they get to... As long as she doesn't forget her toothbrush, they will avoid debt is some sort of logic, but I'm going to roll with it. Yeah. Look, all I know in this scene is that Connie has beautiful Susan Bunch from Friends hair. Um, (laughs) Do you know who that is? Is that... Yeah, yeah, yes. Yep, that one translates. Okay, great. (laughs) I always like to double check and then I remember that you're the most culturally literate person that I have ever spoken with. Hey, look, I've made at least one Scream 2 reference already. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Evidence. <laughs> Evidence. Um, so Connie has a hallucination that Lydia Bennett is stabbed in the head with some, like a meat fork. Um, and then she has another hallucination that her silver goblet isn't a silver goblet. It's a literal jar of piss. So she's just, you know, flashing back to that Pittsburgh wine. Yeah, absolutely. And I love that she's like, oh my God, I, could, I, I am from the wrong side of the tracks. I'm a hipster. She's drinking from a jar. It's just incredibly random. Oh yeah, this, this episode's really ahead of its time. Very much so. <laughs> um, okay, so a pearl necklace goes missing and the girls blame her for it. And they threaten to call the police. And they're like, would you rather be in this sorority house or be in jail? And I'm like... I. I don't think the police would put her in prison because a necklace is missing that isn't on her person. Yeah. <laughs> or yeah. in general. Yeah, that's right. And I don't think they're going to dust for prints either. You know what I mean? I think it's an extreme reaction and it doesn't necessarily work. <laughs> Look, it, yeah, it's, it's the United States police system we must remember. And these are both uh, white ladies. So they're going to say, you know what? We're going to put this file in a drawer and forget about it. (laughs) That makes sense. Yeah, but then there's a sorority initiation, which is horrifying where they are asking her to literally prostitute herself yeah um, i'm getting i'm getting jodie foster in the accused vibes she's wearing this red dress and and like a belt made out of handcuffs and and they're basically it's a great like, outfit it's it's amazing i'm definitely gonna yeah, i'm halloween ideas I've, I've jotted it down but i like it's really manipulative and it's an awful thing it's literally like you want to be a part of us you want to you know be please have sex with a random person yeah, it's it's really really despicable, 
And the, the this scene cuts to commercial on her being dragged away by some random street man. So I was thinking that that was, um, am I correct in thinking that that is uh, the the drag, the guy who died in the drag race? You know, this mysterious ghost that was in the first half of, half of the episode, Mr. Dugan? Or is it that- just a, a random David Lynch inspired, uh, you know, dumpster hobo, you know, because there are definite David Lynch vibes throughout here, although I may be imposing them upon the, <laughs> upon this material. <laughs> uh, I think making the connection with the first half of the episode is a great idea. That is not what I got from it at all. <laughs> um, I took it as just a, you know, run of the mill dumpster hobo like Springwood, Ohio has just crawling around. Well, we know that they have plenty of those. <laughs> Look, yeah, the... The criminal underbelly of Springwood is strong. <laughs> um, and it has a strong a strong uh, a vigilante culture as well. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, look, the, the police are useless. Look, we, <laughs> we know this from all the way back to, you know, Freddy's origin story to the first movie. Donald Thompson's watching his daughter break windows in a burning building screaming for help. And he's like, it's probably fine. Look, I think it's appropriate at this point to just go RIP John Saxon. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh. John, I miss you. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So Connie shows back up the house for some, like, basically this act of the episode is just a full-on revenge slasher, and it is great. It is. Um, One of sorority girls whose personality is that she is hungry, um, she's making a sandwich, and she gets her throat slit in a pretty decent effect for television. Yeah, she stabbed in the head, stabbed in the hand, and then slit. It's it's oh yeah, it's not too bad. It's not too bad. You can see the kind of like charming, you know, nuts and bolts of it all. But it's 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 well done. I will also say again, Return of the Bread. Okay, it's a thing in the sorority. Just saying, <laughs> my favorite Lord of the Rings story. <laughs> I love Lord of the Rings. There's only one carb to rule them all. And she, you know, she's trying to get to the bottom of it. She is. Um, so there's this wild Ray Bradbury calliope music playing underneath the scene. <laughs> um, <clears throat> the girl who framed her for stealing the necklace is garroted with that pearl necklace. Um, Lydia Bennett, who asked for her to sprinkle rose petals in her bed, she is shoved into the mattress as thorns grow out of it, which is awesome but definitely gives away the this is a dream situation yeah it's a bit of a giveaway but it's actually a really well done effect and it's a startling little image to be honest yeah it this is one of the most striking images from the show so far Mm. um and it's actually frightening and atmospheric in an interesting way yeah look you you use the word atmosphere and it's not necessarily something i've seen a lot of in this show thus far but you know in this last 10 minutes of this particular episode um somebody's earning their paycheck which i think was literally just beer and skittles but it's it was a paycheck yeah look you know in the 80s (laughs) if you weren't getting (laughs) cocaine like why did you even do it Um, that's right (laughs) Anyway, so she she sets up this another corpse diorama, like like the ending of Happy Birthday to me. Like all yeah. of the girls are lined up in their kind of initiation garb. Um, they all have candles, but the candles fall, lighting the sorority altar that they have aflame. And she's kind of pledging to the sorority with their mantra, like in in this burning building. Then we wake up. She has survived miraculously, but she's burned down the house and everyone else within it. Look, that that image of uh, the the diorama burning with her backlit against it, uh, that is the, yep, well done, 
image of the episode it kind of reminded me of carrie at the prom and there's definitely a lot of carrie vibes in this second half although they probably didn't quite reach those heights they probably got you know prom night two hello mary lou or the rage carrie two (laughs) or maybe the rage carrie two hey look um who directed the rage carrie two oh gosh oh Um, cat shay rubin cat shay rubin yeah that's it yeah yeah that's right good movie (laughs) it is it's actually really solid like i i didn't mean to insult it by comparison, but this actually part of the episode is pretty solid. So I think it's comparable. Yeah, I think so too. Um, Freddy shows up again to close us out. He's like, it's the old college try. If you can't join him, roast him. And then he has a sorority like paddle, which I think only fraternities do, but I wouldn't know. And he kind of burns his hand with the sorority letters. Yeah, look, um, yes, yes. <laughs> Accurate. <laughs> Uh, look, this episode wasn't too bad. It was pretty good. Well, final thoughts. Was it a dream? Was it a nightmare? Or did it put you to sleep? I think that this one... So, wait, uh, is dream the upper echelon? Are we, is yes. That the, yeah. I, this one, for me, was a dream because I, I, I have a memory of this show, which I used to watch. So, in, in Australia, we got the VHS versions of pretty much all of season one. And we'd have oh, three... Great. Yeah, three episodes of each of each one. They had these day glow covers that you'd pick up from the video store. And I remember renting a bunch of them. And with the power of retrospect, I remember them as being not very good and really cheap looking and things like that. Um, so when I've revisited these since then, um, uh, and our uh, Blu-ray box set of um, the entire film franchise, it actually includes two episodes from this in a beautiful high resolution, <laughs> which oh. was, yeah, which is actually killer instinct and uh it's a miserable life uh in beautiful kind of blu-ray condition on this box set for no reason whatsoever um uh every time i kind of watch a show i'm a little bit surprised that i can happily put it on and go well that was shit but if i dig a little bit deeper <laughs> there's, there's like a lot of ambition perhaps thwarted at times that does show through from time to time and this episode in particular had some it, it had a little bit of something, and I was impressed. I was surprised and quite entertained. Oh, me too. Look, I was surpri- I've was i watched eight episodes of this show like in pretty quick succession before watching this one. And this one, I think, was overall, like I said, at least visually and atmospherically, very strong. Like, it was really fun to watch. If, if it's not clear, I'm giving this one. It was a dream. Um, <laughs> but, like, in the first segment, literally nothing happens, and yet I couldn't tear my eyes away from it. <laughs> Just the fashions, the kind of bouncy 80s fake rock music. Mm. And in this whole episode, the dream stuff wasn't too prevalent. Obviously, we get the reveal of like what happened in real life versus what happened in dream life. But it wasn't so monotonous and confusing as to like muddy up the story. Yeah, like you can kind of track the oh yes, we've slipped into a dream here. Or but you know there is a, an element of surprise where at no point did I say, do you know what? I think this is all happening, but I think he's trapped under a car the whole time. So you know there are a couple of plot surprises from from time to time. Yeah, and and at least at least here the dreams are underscoring the ways that they feel about what's going on in their lives rather than just being dumb dreams. Yeah, totally get it. And you know Freddie's quips are they are at least eighty percent structured as sentences and i think that's a that's a that's a step in the right direction (laughs) it really is because this i mean this came out at about the right time because it came out between dream master and dream child and dream child really is 
just the blooper reel of a Judd Apatow movie where he's just giving every possible quip and they don't cut any of them. Yeah, it's the it's it's definitely the which what was the one with Adam Sandler? I, I think it's the funny Adam people? Sandler one. Yeah, it's the funny people of the Freddy uh, of the Freddy Cute Kruger universe. Very true. <laughs> okay, um, well that brings us to the wrap up. I'm going to clue you in on what we're going to be talking about next episode. But first, Aaron, where can people find you know you and your stuff all over the internet? Well, um, good thing you specified over the internet, because if you want to find me in Australia, good luck. Um, I seem to be in the middle of nowhere, but online, you can look, hit me up at aarondries.com um, or, or follow me on, on Twitter at, um, Aaron, at Aaron Dries, which is D-R-I-E-S. Um, I love interacting with people and meeting, uh, meeting everyone from around the world. It's always a thrill. Um, and feel free to check out my stuff. Yeah. You absolutely should. Um, I... I'm very glad that I met you before I read one of your novels. Um, even as someone so immersed in the horror industry that I understand that most of the like kindest, gentlest, sweetest people in the world make, you know, you know, deep, grotty horror. Um, if I had read your book first, I definitely would have been a little more skittish approaching you. <laughs> Um, skittish, uh, look, you know, I aim for skittish, but I'm really just skittles. It's, um, it's, a, <laughs> it's a dichotomy that I'm going to end up putting on a t-shirt one day. No, it's a beautiful thing. So yeah, I want you to hear Aaron's voice first, hear his thoughts, feel his heart, and then read his book. And then you can just really understand the full dichotomy of what it means to be human. <laughs> uh, <laughs> beautiful. Anyway, um, here's how you can donate. Every episode is brought to you by donations from listeners like you. Donate to the Okra Project. You can donate through the link in the show notes. Take a screenshot. Send it to me at w2ptpod at gmail.com or DM it to me on social media. You can find me on Twitter at It's Raining Brands and on Instagram at The Burning Clem. Our artwork was created by Henry Hall. If you'd like to support trans artists, and you should, you can send him a commission at henryhall.design. Our theme song is Living in a Dream by Pseudo Echo. Find us wherever you found us. <laughs> Rate and review. Um... And the next episode, um, Aaron's going to be rejoining us to talk about season one, episode 10, The Bride Wore Red, which is described as follows. A groom-to-be gets a lesson in monogamy from the stripper from hell at his bachelor party. And then his bride is overwhelmed with suspicion and mistrust. Um, the end. <laughs> I can't wait to bring my really, really, really queer perspective to this image of matrimony. <laughs> Oh my god, Aaron. Oh my I'm gosh. Also ready. Um <laughs> But until that, uh sleep tight, I guess, or whatever I'm gonna say. Uh look, y- your 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 final closing line is as well crafted as any one of Freddy Krueger's lines in this entire <laughs> season. So I think you're on point. Okay, so I should so next time I'll just look around the room and find a prop and just kind of say something vaguely referential. Like, hmm, I have a pencil. I'll erase you till tomorrow (laughs) beautiful okay yeah see you on friday everybody bye bye